I'm Smeal Sakran. And I'm Tom Robinson, and you're listening to The Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 182, and on today's show, Jared and I are joined by two of the guys behind Metabase, Samir Al-Sakran, and also Tom Robinson. And Metabase aims to be the simplest, fastest way to get business intelligence and analytics to everyone in your company. We dove deep into what the tool is, how SQL fits into it, the technology behind it all, Clojure, JavaScript, a lot of fun having these guys on the call today. We had four awesome sponsors for this show, CodeShip, TopTal, Harvest, and also DigitalOcean. Our first sponsor for today's show is CodeShip. If you haven't checked out the blog from CodeShip, go check it out, blog.codeship.com. And there was a recent post I wanna mention from Barry Jones titled Why Docker? And he dives deep into why Docker became a household name, why Docker instead of VMs. He even goes into how Docker enables consistent environments and even the fact that Docker isn't going away, he makes that hypothesis that it's not going away. There's also an ebook mentioned in that article. It's free, it's from CodeShip, super awesome ebook. It's titled Why Containers and Docker Are the Future. This book is awesome, go check it out. The link is in the article and I'm gonna put a link to the article in the show notes. So check out the show notes, changelaw.com slash 182. And now on to the show. Howdy, everyone. We are here today, Jared and I, with these awesome dudes behind Metabase, Samir Al-Sakran and Tom Robinson. So, fellows, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And, uh, Jared, what do you think? Are you excited? I'm very excited. Um, Metabase. Recently launched, made a splash. Yeah. And uh, this hit my radar because, frankly, because of Tom. Tom, Tom's so cool. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Well, thank you. Tom, first question. How did you get so cool? (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's that's a very good question. I really have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to answer that. Putting you on the spot, but yeah, I think uh, Tom was one third of 280 North, yeah, which uh, made a splash back in the day. I'm not sure what year that was anymore, but with it's around 2006, I'm gonna guess. Okay, uh, we, the company started around 2006. We publicly launched 2008. There so. you go. So 280 North, famous in the open source community for cappuccino. And Objective J, which many people thought was brilliant, other people thought was crazy. Um, I thought it was two, a typo. <laughs> yeah. I was Objective C, wrong. I'm just kidding. But I happen to be one of those people that thought it was pretty cool. I think 280 Slides, which was basically Keynote inside of a browser um, way back in 2007, 2008, was quite the tech demo and showing off what Cappuccino could do. And yeah, I went into it. I was I was writing some cappuccino, and I actually didn't know Objective C, which made learning Objective J very difficult. But for those who don't know, Objective J was well. Tom, why don't you explain what Objective J is? Yeah, so uh, Objective J was sort of a, a language extension to JavaScript, um, but uh, sort of stepping back uh, to the reason why we sort of, why we did that was we uh, saw all these cool web applications being built by Google and. Uh, mostly Google, uh, back yeah. in 2000, yes, five, five or so, um, Gmail, Google maps, that kind of thing. And we wanted to build those kind of things. And, uh, you really had to do everything from scratch. Uh, there wasn't really a, a 
full-fledged framework uh, sort of analogous to Coco. Um, so we, uh, and, and we had been Cocoa developers, so we, we sort of took a lot of the ideas from that and, and built this framework we called Cappuccino. Um, and at some point, uh, we decided it might be cool to have sort of a language extension that gave us some of the things that Objective-C gave you on top of C, but put it on top of JavaScript so it could run in web browsers. And uh, so it added things like modules and classical inheritance and that kind of thing. Right. And uh, somewhat famous in the open source community for its divisiveness. Um, yep. <laughs> but no, no doubt interesting in what allowed to produce. Um, and then 280 North, eventually you guys sold, correct? Yeah, yeah. So we, we worked on Cappuccino for a couple of years. Uh, we started working on some developer tools around Cappuccino. And, right. Um, we uh, ended up being acquired by Motorola in 2010 um, to work on similar kinds of things there. There you go. So 280 North no longer uh, a thing or at least consumed by Motorola. And then, you know, you start to ask yourself over time, what happened to those guys? Where are they? And I, I think I had followed Tom on Twitter. Um, then all of a sudden out comes Metabase. And he, I think you said, if you've been wondering what I've been up to lately, uh, this is it. And so... That was kind of the the genesis of this call. Also, we had a few people, uh, Changelog members, chatting about Metabase on launch day, saying, "Oh, we got to get these guys on," and here we are. Here we are. Here we are. But let's let's learn a little bit about Samir. Uh, Samir's CEO. Tom, are you CTO? No, our CTO is uh, Alan. Uh, okay, he, he couldn't be on today. So. Fair enough. So Tom's an engineer. Um, Chief Rabble Rouser. Chief Robble Rouser. I like that. Yeah. Samir, why don't you uh, give our audience a little bit of introduction to who you are and where you're coming from? Yeah, I guess um, I've been coding since I was in middle school. Um, I spent a lot of my earlier career just dealing with some of the crazier sections around machine learning, engineering. Um, I think my f first couple jobs all revolved around ML. And at some point I started doing Hadoop before Hadoop was cool. And a couple years into that, most of my life was spent either cleaning crappy data, uh, pushing crappy data around, or displaying the net results of pushing crappy data around. Hmm. And so it became less about algorithms, more about just presenting information to normal human beings. I think that's been the main theme of the last couple of years of my life. Interesting. How did you find that? Like, uh, you thought you were going to be doing more advanced algorithms, but... Is it was it your exposure to like real business problems where you realized it's just a bunch of crappy data and now I have to maintain it? I think a big part of it is that most most companies, most teams, most organizations are at a much level much lower level of Maslow's hierarchy of data needs than they think they are. And then what it really comes down to is most people just want to add up some numbers and show a pretty picture to someone. And so you now you kind of get on board. There's all this talk about all the crazy things that everyone wants to do. And then when you actually sit down at your desk and realize, well, none of the stuff that lets you build the crazy stuff, the crazy things is actually around. And so there was this definite moment of moving from, I guess my the first thing I did at my, at my first real startup job was just optimizing memory patterns. And so it was, Hey, here's this recommendation algorithm. It's running on a single core. And, you know, I think it was four gigabytes of RAM back then. And I spent the first three months just trying to stuff more training samples into that four gigs. 
And then Hadoop came about, and it was more. It switched gear. I switched gears from being kind of a memory sort of hash map uh, tweaker to just adding up numbers for label reporting. And so a lot of a lot of the sexy stuff that Hadoop unlocked was just being able to add up, you know, plays of who played which track for how long, faster and better. I think that's an interesting insight. I have a friend here locally in Omaha who's uh, kind of an operational consultant, and he's very much at the same level as you, or with many with small businesses. I think we all focus a lot on large businesses and enterprise and corporations um, with huge, you know, data systems and um, many large problems they're trying to solve. And there's thousands, if not tens of thousands, of small businesses out there that just have no handle at all on their data. Um, and no insights whatsoever. Maybe just a series of spreadsheets on a shared network storage that you know they're trying to share access to, or those kind of things. Um, so, man, I mean, that seems like a very good lead in the metabase, right? Sure does. So glad you guys teed it up for me. Um, <laughs> Tell us, Samir, what is metabase? Um, at the end of the day, metabase is a way to take all the stuff you have lying around in a database somewhere, whether it's a data warehouse and you've paid for a bunch of money or whether it's just a MySQL box you have running on your desk and let normal human beings get at it um, in the sense that, you know, for most, most people don't, aren't engineers. Most people, and even if they are engineers, they don't necessarily want to write SQL all day. At some point, you just get tired of banging out yet another um, view of a data with a chart attached to it. And so the primary kind of purpose of Metabase is just to take a table or a database and then render it in a real way, and then also to let someone interact with that data and, and that, that visualization and kind of get to what they're looking for. Um, and at least on its face, it's meant to feel more like clicking through something and kind of exploring as opposed to, I'm showing up, I have a question, I know exactly what I want, and here are all the parameters. It's more that, I mean, I, I could say most of my professional life, I've not known exactly what I wanted when I sat down. So even in situations where there was a very concrete request from someone or we knew what we were building, when you actually sit down to write the queries, it's like, um, so I think I want to see what's in this table. I want to do a select whatever limit, 10. I want to futz around with it. I want to see what the various values are. I don't remember what this field was called. I don't remember whether this was a string or an enum. And rather than having to look all that up or memorize it or just spend that first half an hour with a bunch of selects, um, Metabase is really just created to let me sit down or let someone who is n not nearly as technical sit down and get to the kinds of questions they want to ask. I know when we first looked at Metabase, I was thinking, okay, what is the purpose of this? Because in one side, it's like, uh, you know, your tagline is an easy way for customers to, or sorry, companies to ask questions and learn from data. So I was wondering if it was like a Quora thing, you know, that was open sourced or was it something you pointed at a database? So you seem to kind of answer that in a, in a bit of a way. Yeah, I think we're still struggling to kind of describe what it really is. Um, most of the vocabulary in the space has been overloaded and made almost meaningless. So like we're analytics, we're business intelligence, we're reporting, we're um, data access, we're I don't know. And there have been thousands of products that do fundamentally the same thing we're doing, which is take a database and 
I let someone visualize it and look at it and play with it. Um, but yeah, so like I get, I get the, I get your confusion about the word questions, and I don't think we've found a really good way to describe fully what we are. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like, uh, you know, open it up to the company if you've got questions, very mm-hmm. core, like you know, internally, so to speak. Yeah. And I've seen some of those come come and go, and I was like, well, is that what it is? But then as we dug deeper, it was like, okay, it seems like you pointed at a database, so you can, you know, to jump the gun a little bit, we can we have several different ways that we can play with it, and one of the ways is if you're on a Mac, you can download sort of a wrapped version that's just for play only, I guess maybe you can do some personal production stuff, but it's not like collaborative, you know, but you can point it at a database locally and start to discern some of the data. There's that word again, Samir. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you checking out some of your data and visualizing it and, you know, running queries. It seems like it's, you know, a layer on top of that. Uh, but the, the ask questions part was very confusing to me. Point taken. Yeah, and even once you get into it, uh, I have been running a few things, and of course, I'm you know, uh, as an Apple develop uh, Apple developer, as an as a app developer, like queries and selects and right, like SQL is you know, you start to think in relational models, um, and so I'm immediately thinking, okay, this is a query builder, but the the interface and the I, I see what you're trying to do is like create a new question, and it's like you're trying to provide an insight or something. But then once you start building a question, really it is like kind of like describing what you want to see. And so there's a bit of a there's a bit of an impedance mismatch between the word question and I think what's going on. But I definitely see how that's a difficult thing to describe and, and where you guys are trying to get with it. You're trying to simplify the uh, cognitive space necessary to actually like construct these things so that everybody can do it and not people like us. Just to jump the gun a little bit, I think... Um... When you really get down to it, like the fundamental problem we're solving is at, in our current state is what someone's mental model is of their application or their data set or their business or whatever it is, whatever it is they have data about and letting them work in that model as opposed to the model of their schema on disk. And so one of the, one of the interesting things about MetaBase is we're also starting to kind of nudge in the direction of rather than formulated question rather than telling us what you want you just kind of poke around and you're like you can double click on a cell and filter by it you can follow an id to that records detail you can follow connections and in general the overall sort of user idiom we're going for is i have i can look at the data i can play around with it and then rather than having to formulate the question precisely it just emerges for me clicking around uh-huh. Yeah, I think that would be a a nice extension of that, or you know, per, perhaps eventually a replacement altogether. It's this kind of just an exploratory thing. Um, but so the first question that Adam and I started asking is like, what exactly is this? I think we've covered that pretty well. Um, the other question we had was like, was why is this open source? But I think that's even um, assuming we have some knowledge, which is. You know, as we introed you guys, Samir, you're the CEO of Metabase. So this is not just an open source project. This is a company, um, which we're seeing more and more of this. Uh, I think just last week, Adam, we had uh, Slava Akhmachet on with RethinkDB, which is both an open source project and it's also a company. And it's a growing trend in open source. So maybe let's rewind a bit and just get an idea of what Metabase the company is, um, where you guys come from and... um, the business side of things. 
Yeah, so um, Metabase was originally part of Expo, which is a startup studio in San Francisco. Um, I'd spent about a year and a half there, and we'd originally built out this huge, crazy custom analytics system for all of our companies um, that spanned everything from collecting events to stuffing them in a data warehouse to running transformations on them, and then filing to visualizing them, visualizing both the data and queries on top of the data. Um, and about a year ago, we'd reached the point where we definitely wanted to work on it full-time. We definitely thought that it had legs and that it was something the community would want. Um, and that rather than it being something that was used by 10 companies internally, we could open up to the world and have potentially anyone use it. Um, and so that's kind of where it emerged from. I'd say the other thing it emerged from was just I've wanted something like it for about seven or eight years now. And every couple of years, I poke my head out of the, you know, out of the ground, look around, check out the usual suspects in the open source BI world, try to install them, hate the process, and just write my own query builder or add inventory planner or customer record lookup or something of that sort. And so kind of jumping the gun to your question of like, why is it open source? I think one of the starting points is just I think there should be something like it in the open source community and the ecosystem. Um, and had someone else built it, you know, three or four years ago, I probably would never have started on it. But it just feels like something that's missing and something that I've always wanted. Um, on the business side of things, I think we're still figuring out exactly how that'll play out. But the general sense is we will be you know, offering a metabase itself, you know, for free, open source, forever, it's production grade. Uh, we're never going to hold anything back. And then the things around the usage of Metabase in a company will start to charge money for. Okay, so we actually have a tweet from probably Jared, one of the fellow ChangeLog members that you mentioned, Justin Dorfman. He asked a question on Twitter, um, just tweeting to you, Tom, and and then at at Metabase, and said, "Looks awesome," and you know, in reference to Metabase, came with to try it out. How do you plan to sustain it? So you seem like you answered that to a degree. Because his question was, will there be a pro version? Now, uh, Jared mentioned that's sort of the way that we've seen more and more companies like RethinkDB or others create a open source version and a supported version or a pro version that's on top of it that's, you know, much more robust. So mm-hmm. is that something we could talk about here today? Do you have a lot of details around that? Um, I mean, we have a couple rough prototypes we've played around with. We have a couple themes we're exploring. I'd characterize it less as a pro version that's somehow better than the open source version and more the supporting scaffolding that lets you use it in big, hairy, complex places. And so there's lots of things that most people don't really care about until they do. So like compliance or data governance or auditing who saw what um, or maintaining institutional knowledge across 10 years worth of analysts and being able to disseminate that. And while that's something that you know Comcast would pay money for, it's unlikely that someone who you know, does a Git clone or uh, eventually an app get would ever care about. And so as, as usage at a company or someplace that, may, that is commercial takes off and you go from having 10 people on it to 20 analysts and 100 end users, there's a lot of problems that emerge that we will offer solutions for that we'll charge money for. You mentioned that if there was an open source version out there, you probably wouldn't have done it. Um, maybe it's an obvious question, but why why open source? Why, what what makes sense to make Metabase open source? What's your plans for open source? 
Um, in some way, it's just how I think this kind of software should be available. Um, and I characterize kind of the starter BI kit for most companies as being the same class of things as WordPress or Nginx or an app server or you know, UWSGI, where it feels like such a basic component of most modern you know, stacks that it's kind of weird that there isn't an open source starting point there. And so it, in some ways, it's kind of ideological. Um, and in some ways, it's just a sense that the entire data infrastructure ecosystem is all open source, or sorry, the part that I care about, the part that I'm engaged with, and the part that I've worked in has been open source. And I both want to kind of contribute to that commons, as well as just my own belief that a better product will result as at the end of it all. All right, well said. Well, it's time to take a break. On the other side, we're going to talk about SQL, how that plays in, and what you all might be thinking. That's what SQL was made for. So we'll be right back. Our friends at TopTal launched a scholarship program for female developers to support aspiring female computer scientists, developers, and software engineers to help achieve their goals through financial support and also mentorship. Each scholarship winner will receive a $5,000 scholarship that can be used towards education and professional development goals. You can spend this money on anything you want from coding boot camps to online programming courses, textbooks, you name it. You also get one-on-one mentoring, an entire year of weekly one-on-one mentoring with a top-tail senior developer. And this person is going to help you with topics like project guidance, choosing an academic or career path, and also preparing for interviews. Head to toptile.com slash scholarships to learn more and also to apply. All right, we are back again with Tom and Samir diving deep into what Metabase is. For those of you out there listening along got questions like this, you may be thinking that that's what SQL was meant to be and what it should solve. So uh, Tom, Samir, I'm not sure who wants to take this, but uh, it, it seems like this is some of what uh, SQL was meant to solve, and I get it, a better user experience, uh, you know, maybe even platform agnostic, uh, web UI, more flexibility, things like that. But, you know, why is this better than plain old SQL? So I have a long rant about that, but Tom, if you want to chime in first, maybe you can. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, uh, so SQL is is fantastic for uh, developers, for uh, anyone who's, you know, able to you know, parse and, and really understand the syntax of uh, SQL, which, you know, a lot of us probably take for granted, uh, you know, how, how easy it is to use. It's, uh, if you're familiar with programming languages, it's, it's not difficult to pick up. But if you're not, um, you know, it's, it's just a lot more difficult to format everything correctly, know exactly what you're supposed to say. Uh, and so Metabase offers sort of a, a more graphical way of expressing a lot of the same types of things um, and more powerful things as well. Well, Samir, you said you had a rant. So what's your rant? Um, so I think it's interesting to look at SQL in the context of the 70s when it came out. And I, and there's kind of this, you know, every five or 10 years, there's always some new citizen BI movement or product or marketing campaign. And if you look back, and think about what it was like to write database access modules or code or just queries before SQL, you had some variant of assembly language or C and you were hitting 
DB or DB2 directly. Um, and so when SQL came out, it's kind of, in many ways, a bombshell in the sense that it looked like English. Normal human beings could probably understand it in a couple of days. And if you were smart and numerical and, and just at all inclined, uh, it was, it's not that hard to pick up. Right. Um, and I'd say that, you know, even it was a categorical huge success. And I can't say enough good things about SQL overall and just the RDBMS. Um, but what, what else has happened is there's been just these waves of accessibility where you start out with just, I'm going to write some crappy assembly code, then to, I'm going to write SQL. And then you get spreadsheets and spreadsheets are magic and, you know, Excel is kind of one of those transformative technologies in our, in our world. And then you kind of get into the world of like maybe access counts and then you get Tableau in the mid 2000s. And in each of those has been this, this significant widening of the pool of people that have creativity and questions and honestly just like are informally what they want to know and are the people that should be asking the underlying questions. And this lets them do that as opposed to requiring them to also learn how to be programmers. Yeah, it, it does seem to remove the barrier too to be, you know, in quotes, a programmer, a developer, someone who is familiar with or even comfortable with it. And I can think of many people who are have creative minds that you're like, man, you should be in these meetings with us asking these questions because that's a great question. Yeah. Seems like you're wanting to put a great tool in their hands. And some, and some of it is just, um, even if you are a program and if, even if you are inclined in that way, like, and I, I mean, I don't know how good I am at SQL when all of a sudden done. I think I have at least a working knowledge of it, but I've definitely hung out with people that are much more proficient at it than I am. Um, there's still days when you don't want to type or you don't want to think in that way. Or, you know, if you're fundamentally in a creative headspace, and you're thinking about yeah, what people are doing and how they've done it, you know, whether it's dropping down to MapReduce, whether it's writing SQL, whether it's, you know, writing R scripts or Python scripts, there's days when that's not how your brain's wired up. Um, and I think it's useful to be able to approach problems from different directions using different tools. And so like every once in a while, I'll fire Tableau or I'll, you know, pull up R or MATLAB. But there are days when you just want to see a, a pretty picture or a graph and you don't want to deal. So, right. And the flip side of this is given that most of us don't work in isolation, there's other people in the room that are doing all kinds of stuff that is hopefully useful. Um, you don't necessarily want them banging on your door every time they have a question. I, I can think of things like two where you're in the, you know, you're in marketing, you're in product development and you don't feel like going and messing with the people in ops or infrastructure or somebody that's got, you know, way more things to do and to, to answer your questions about, you know, data basically. Yeah. Cause I mean, they, they have stuff they're doing in real life too. Like, you know, we all have jobs presumably, right. um, or we all have things we do for fun or passion or to pay the rent. And usually there's only so many hours in the day. And if rather than having an ops person or a DBA spend 30 hours a week fielding all these kind of recurring ad hoc internal support questions, even it seems like precisely, you know, um, like how do I do this? Where's this data coming from? Or what does this field mean? Is like, what does is underscore test underscore account mean this week? Right. Uh, That's, that's my favorite rant actually. Maybe um, it would be clarifying to the listening audience because they can't see it. They can't feel it right while we're here talking about it. Could one of you kind of verbally go through what the user experience is of asking a question and kind of formulating 
uh, some things you can do in MetaBase. Can you kind of walk us through what the UI looks like and this user experience looks like? Sure, I could take that. Um, so you, you load up MetaBase. Uh, if you haven't added a database, you can uh, add all the you know, connection details uh, for the you know, host name, port, password, all that, all that stuff. And then uh, basically just click create a new question or ask a new question. And um, it presents you with this uh, sort of graphical editor for, for expressing queries. Um, you first select the database uh, that you want to ask a question about. Um, and then it gives you a whole bunch of options on uh, filters, uh, aggregations, sorting, you know, a lot of the same kind of things that you could express in SQL. Um, but we, we try to, you know, limit your choices to things that make sense um, and give you special uh, interfaces for different data types. So if it's a, a numerical column, you can uh, filter by uh, greater than equals, you know, those, those kinds of things. If it's a date uh, or timestamp, you can filter by uh, like a special date picker. Um, and then you can aggregate uh, the results in various ways, like uh, counting uh, sums of certain columns, grouping by different columns. Uh, and, and so the idea is you, you start by picking you know, a table, maybe you just view the raw table to begin with, and then uh, you can pick a an aggregation, view it aggregated some way, and then add filters and that sort of thing as, as you sort of decide what direction you want to go with the query. And for somebody who's kind of getting antsy, got to ask the question, is it read and write only, or is can you write back to it, or is it just read only? Uh, it's, it's read only. Uh, okay. all, the, all the connections to the databases are read only, and you know if you want to create a, a special account on your database that's read only, uh, we recommend you do that as well. About 10,000 people just wiped their brow. They had some sweat on their brow and they're like, nice. Yeah, uh, you probably don't want to be issuing queries against your production database anyway, so you might uh, set up a replica or something like that. Yeah, I guess because that, that would be kind of shared traffic, internal traffic, and then actually, you know, real writing to the and reading from the database would, would make some sense. I also have some notes that uh, you can still do SQL when you need it. Can you talk about what that user experience is like. So if you're, if you're doing these questioning and you're kind of diving into your data, if you do have that kind of a superpower, like uh, being able to write SQL and query the database, how do you access that piece? Sure. Uh, yeah. So in, in this query editor, there's, when you start a new question, uh, there's a little toggle uh, button in the, in the top right hand corner that you can flip uh, over to SQL mode. And uh, yeah, we just give you a, a fairly uh, basic SQL editor, but it does have auto completion for all the various operators and table names and, and that kind of thing. Is the hope with that feature to get both sides of the fence using the same tool? So if you're uh, if you got the superpower to be able to do SQL and write SQL, you're in the same thing that the other users are in. Is that the idea, or is it just simply to uh, you know give quick access? Uh, so. I, you know, it started. We 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 have that in there because they're, you know, we, we're trying to uh, create this this editor that can express any sort of query you want within reason. Um, but at least, especially in the early days, we we couldn't express a lot of the queries that our our users wanted to ask. So uh, having the SQL editor 
allows you to drop down into SQL to, to express more queries. Um, and some people are just more comfortable with SQL and that's, that's fine as well. So, uh, once you save a question, uh, you know, you can add either one to a dashboard and, and that sort of thing. It doesn't matter if it's a SQL query or, uh, built with our graphical editor. One of the things that lets you do is like for the, for the kinds of questions our interface can express, it lets someone with a secret power do it for others and then they can reuse that. So most people, even if they can't write SQL, are very comfortable taking this wall of text and replacing 714 to go from weekly to 14-day averages. Um, and so people are willing to edit and remix them, but they wouldn't have the ability to create them from scratch. Tom, going back to something you mentioned earlier, it was just when you're actually asking the question that the process of asking gets smarter based on the actual data fields in the database. Does association detection require the proper foreign keys or is it smarter than that? Uh, so we, we try to detect as much as we can uh, based on yeah foreign keys that you have set up uh, and the field types and all that. Uh, and if we don't do a perfect job, you can edit all the metadata uh, that we've captured about your schema in the settings page. So uh, yes and no. <laughs> and being a little more in the weeds, um, even if something doesn't have constraints, you can still use them in join statements. And so if you go in and manually say, this field is a foreign key to that table, um, then all of our kind of uh, relationship or has one relationship aspects of our query builder still work. So. Um, and we're trying to get smarter around auto-detecting things like that, but it's it's an ongoing process. Can we talk about uh, database support? You got uh, support for MySQL. Let me go back to the list because I didn't have it, and I'm bringing up that topic, and I'm not perfectly ready to ask the question, but you got uh, MySQL, Postgres, Mongo, and then I had to ask Jared, I'm like, hey, what is Redshift? Because I'd actually never used that, <laughs> so I had to go look that up, and it's actually pretty cool. It's from Amazon. So if you didn't know about Redshift, Amazon makes it, and it seems pretty interesting. So I don't deal with big data enough, so that's why. Let's talk about the the support for various databases. Obviously, MySQL makes sense, Postgres, Mongo. Um, what's the process to support that from a technical standpoint? So we have a uh, we have a query language that um, all of our all of our queries built using the interface are serialized as, and then we have a separate step which converts those to either SQL or uh, the Mongo query language or whatever else we support. And so adding additional drivers is what we call them internally, is just you know creating another driver for a specific target, either SQL dialect or completely different database driver. So we had uh, Slava Ahmacek on recently, RethinkDB. So if he wanted to support uh, Rethink and Metabase, it's simply forking, writing the undriver and boom, goes to Dynamite? Yeah. That's awesome. If you know a guy who knows a guy, we'd love it if they would help us out with that. <laughs> well, we do know a guy. But I'm sure maybe the guy's listening, so uh, just do it, Slava. Yeah, and in general, like, we're, we're committing to writing a bunch ourselves, um, but the primary determinant of which ones we write is just what people ask for. And so we've been funneling people to the GitHub issues in question and just trying to get a gauge for, of the folks that have found us, of the folks that are using us, what do they want? Um, and so, for example, we're working on both um, SQL Server, which apparently a lot of people asked and wanted, which I didn't expect, um, as well as Redshift drivers. And there's a couple other open issues for um, 
just off the top of my head, Elasticsearch, uh, BigQuery, um, Spark, Presto, maybe Impala. And just if enough people want one of those, we'll do it. Um, but we don't want to just write 50 drivers for every different dialect without having there be someone who's who cares enough to complain about it and just cast their vote. Good stuff. Well, it's time for another break. When we get back from this break, we're going to dive deeper into getting started with Metabase, moving on for the Mac app, and getting into production. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you thought Harvest was only about time tracking, check again. Fast invoicing and payments. You can easily create and send invoices and accept payments with PayPal, Stripe, and many more. You got expense tracking without the mess. You got an iPhone or an Android app to go on the go with you. Snap photos of receipts and store them in the Harvest app. You can also connect favorite tools like Slack and use chat commands to start and stop your timers. Head to getharvest.com and start your free trial. And once that trial is over, use our code CHANGELAW to save 50% off your first month. We're back and uh, we still have these two awesome fellas, Thomas and with us and Jared. We're dealing with a little tiny bit of lag with Jared. So if for some reason, I'll edit this good, but, but Jared... You sound beautiful, man. I love it. You sound great. Edit it good, man. Edit it good. Edit it good. You know, and I, I before the break, I said, let's come in talking about platform and, you know, how we can get this to production. But I want to ask one more question real quick that's more on the general side before we go into the deep tech side. Um, you know, we're in the days of Slack, real-time communications, things like that. And I'm, I'm just wondering how these kind of things play together when you actually communicate with your team and then you're actually... Um, you know, to kind of digging into your data, is there ever a plan to sort of do some Slack integrations? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, it's uh, funny you mentioned that because that's exactly what we're working on uh, right now. <laughs> right now, okay, that's awesome. Say. Boom. Can you talk about that a bit? What's what, what's the what can we expect? Sure. Um, so we're we're working on this feature called Pulses. Uh, the idea is you pick you pick a few of the questions you've already asked uh, and saved, and uh, up up to five questions, and you can send those out uh, to various channels. Um, the two we're supporting initially are Slack and email, uh, and so you can pick five questions, uh, pick a channel or two channels, uh, and pick a schedule, and we will automatically run those queries you know, run those questions, uh, and send out the results, uh, to the, the channels that you, you selected. I can think of how that's going to be so useful. I mean, you know, for one, taking, you know, all this data knowledge and putting it in the hands of people who are creative enough to ask, you know, these creative questions, as Samir mentioned earlier, and now you're allowing them to craft questions that dig through this data and sort of snapshot it back to the uh, internal team, or I guess anywhere Slack is supported really even uh, open channels. It's just been one of those things I've seen at every single job I've ever had where at some point someone walks up and wants my email. Yeah. And so it just kind of, it's the generalization of that. And then that person spends so much time like crafting these emails for people just to keep them updated. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's just dumb. Yeah. Don't do that. Something like this makes me want, you know, maybe even a step further. And I'm wondering if, you know, perhaps these thoughts, you probably have had these thoughts for sure, but it's like, it's, you talk about asking questions, but then we, we structure a query basically. Um, it's almost like we need to take it the next level where you can actually have maybe categorized or formalized question styles that you can actually ask a question. Cause once we start dealing with like, 
you know, Slack integrations and, and, you know, send me an email every day. What, well, why don't I just be able to ask this thing a question? And it just gives me the answer. Just today I was, I was wondering if there's a Slack bot way of saying, you know, how many people are on the website right now? Um, and it's like, I don't even want to go take that, turn it into a query and then, you know, do that extra step. seems like even with this tool, which is definitely, you know, lowering things for many people to have access to data that wouldn't otherwise, it seems like, you know, you could, the Siri, the Siri-fication of querying, um, if I could just come up with a ridiculous term, seems like that would be awesome. <laughs> like, what do you guys think about that? I like that? the term, dude. It's a good term. Serification. You know, we wanted to start with something pretty simple. Uh, you know, the, the minimum viable thing that we could do that's useful um, for Slack integration. So that's that's where we're starting. But uh, I could definitely see us, you know, adding something like that in the future, uh, where you can just sort of type a freeform question and we try to parse it and and give you the results back. That I guess that Jared, your your suggestion there assumes they have a long runway. And I guess maybe one more question before we dive deep into the tech side of things is. As we talked a bit earlier about pro versions and sustainability, like how important is getting to some part where you all are making money as a company? Does that matter? Do you have funding? Do you have runway? Are we are we concerned about things like that? So we have a bit of funding, and I think it'll see us through. I mean, definitely in the next year. Um, we're still trying to piece together exactly what it looks like from a company perspective. Um, I think one of the, you know, one of the strong reasons we are open sourcing all of it is we want to have a life outside of just our company. Um, and so while you know, in terms of my landlord needing me to pay rent, it's quite important that we somehow do make a living from all this. Um, I think there is we expect to make money in ways that are not related to the actual core product and the user experience itself. How soon will we hear about a MetaBase Conf? Um, as soon as there's 10 people that want to get together at an open bar, there you go. At a city near you. So it's, it's meetup first. Then, uh, exactly. Next. Exactly. We can call it uh MetaConf, even Ooh. when it's just an open bar, actually. Nice. I like, I like it. And this might be a good place to plug. Well, it's mostly a joke right now, but we're talking about creating a, a microbrewery. Oh, huh. I forget the exact, um, Beer names you've come up with, but Tom, do you remember what? Uh, well, there was, was Meta, Meta Brewery or Meta Meta Beer was the name of the brewery. Yeah, there were like actual. Anyway, so <laughs> yes, coming soon to a micro to a MetaConf near you. Uh, it kind of reminds me. Of, I mean, it's a tangent, so forgive me. But when we were at GopherCon uh, this past July at the. Uh, uh, wine coop brewery which is where the after party was for 1300 gophers um you had to do something special right so they actually had a uh, a special beer jared do you recall what the beer was called for, for gopher con i can only recall that it was delicious it was delicious that's true what was it called i don't know i don't know <laughs> i can't remember that's why i asked you but it was yeah. good. I liked we're, it. We're all striking out on beer names now oh man all right well let's get to the things we actually do know about which is technology at least i think so so samir tom whomever wants to take this uh take us through some of uh what this is actually written and i can understand 46 percent closure 40 percent javascript you know what were some of the choices you had to make and why um so it's had quite a few incarnations and i guess i'll just kind of rattle them off um and if anything's interesting we can drill into them 
Um, so it started off life as just a big ball of Python um, with literally jQuery charts in the front end. Um, and at some point, the just brain damage of dealing with async in the Python world just got to be a little too much. Um, that plus we've always had the idea of making sure that it was super easy to install and deploy. And for all its flaws, the JVM is kind of awesome in that regard. Uh, there's something just magical about a single file you, you push around, whether it's Go or a jar file, but there's something just compelling about that. Um, and so we played around with different options. We wrote little mini prototypes in a couple languages. I think at one point we settled on Scala and we're in the process of rewriting it um, and just just some of the associated brain damage for the team was just too much and we switched to Clojure. And so that happened approximately January through March. It was kind of a rolling migration and it's pretty much entirely enclosure these days. There was a, a shred of Java for our migrations framework, but um, that's since been ported. I know when I installed the Mac app to play with it a bit, um, I had to run Java. So is that the, the piece kind of lingering then to support the, the Mac app? Um, so actually the Mac app is ironically, um, all right, let me back up a second. So at this point in time, it's a closure app, which compiles down to a jar file, which is run on the JVM, which is the Java virtual machine. Um, one of the, the main impetus for the Mac app originally was that it was a pain in the ass to install the Java, either the JRE, which is the Java runtime environment, or the Java development kit on a Mac. And having watched a couple of my analyst coworkers or ex-coworkers or friends try to do it, it just became more and more painful. And so the original vision of the Mac app was just bundle the JRE with the actual jar file and slap a web view on top of that. And it's kind of grown a little from there. So what you're seeing is just the JVM spinning up, or sorry, the JRE spinning up in that separate little window you see with like core or something up. Yeah, yeah. I'd actually closed it. I was like, I don't want that running. And then the yeah, you kind of do. Yeah, you kind of want that. <laughs> it's needed. It's important. Yeah. If I could just go back a, a quick second. Sorry, Tom. If I could just uh, wind, wind you back to something you said there, Samir, uh, the switch from Scala to Closure Script. You said. That, that the problem was all the associated brain damage. Could you just could you uh, <laughs> unpack that for us? Um, so I've kind of blacked out a lot of that portion of my life, to be perfectly honest. But <laughs> of the bits that I recall, um, and it was you know, obviously I had relatively little to do with that change. It was Alan, who Tom mentioned, and Cam, another one of the backend guys. Um, so one of one of the core sticking points was just. A, the fact that Scala, most of Scala SQL DSLs are strongly typed, which if you're generating dynamic queries is exactly what you don't want because there's no way in which you can actually construct a type system that will know what some arbitrary user-created uh, query will, will have. Mm. Um, the other bit was just, it just felt, I don't know how to describe it, it just didn't feel fun. Um, and when Cam essentially just said, hey, we want to do closure and wrote a prototype over a couple of days. It got kind of to where about a, a week and a half worth of dedicated Scala coding um, took us. And so that was like maybe a day or two of actual just closure work by him at that point. And so, you know, kind of went, went around and around on it for a couple of days or I think a week or two. And eventually just felt like a, a more natural um, language to express all this in. And I briefly mentioned our query language and how we 
kind of compile or transpile that to SQL or Mongo. And that looks and feels a lot like just straight stream manipulation, which I've always found easier to do in, in a list rather than Scala. Yeah, I'd love it if you can dive a little bit deeper into the career language and kind of talk about what that's all about. All right, so I'm at least like a, a decade out of my compilers class. So if I misspeak, um, I hope no one flames me too hard. Um, but what we, what we try to create is um, a language you can express um, a large set of interesting queries in. Um, it, it's kind of like SQL, but um, one, of the, one of the primary differences was it's meant to be composable. And so you can do things like save snippets and pass them around, and that each snippet or subtree is pretty much uniquely determined. And so it's, it's really hard to slice up SQL and then pass it around. Um, it looks and feels a little like the AST you get if you if you parse SQL. Um, and so a lot of a lot of just my mental model for this comes from back in the day when I was doing genetic programming, where you do tree manipulations and you express. Uh, programs or designs in trees and you futz with them. And so we have essentially a query language that starts off with here's a bunch of operators, here's um, the various clauses in a, in a, in a query, um, and here's ways to reference fields, to reference eventually macros, to reference um, just aggregations and constants and operators. And that tree then gets passed to Korma or passed to the Mongo driver and executed. Very cool. Well, it sounds like the back end's had a lot of uh, work done to it. Let's let's hear about the front end. Tom, sounds like that's your playground with uh, your history and and building front ends. Can you tell us how that's all put together? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, when I joined, uh, we were in the process of transitioning from uh, an Angular front end to React, and um, it's pretty early on in that process. Uh, started with just the query editor. Um, being you know built in in React, and uh, it was actually pretty easy to sort of drop in little pieces of of React uh, into a larger Angular application, um, and uh, you know since since then we've ported more and more of the application over to React, um, and we're almost at the point where there's no Angular code left except for uh, the routing and uh, some controllers, um, but we would really like to get rid of the rest of that that Angular code and and uh, do completely complete uh, React front on the front end, um, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, it seems like if you're not using too much of Angular, having that as part of your payload is something that you definitely want to yeah, free yourself yeah. from at this point. Yeah. What about uh, data transport? Like, how does the front end and the back end talk? I know there's been a lot of uh, hubbub around moving away from REST and onto these. Uh, Falcor and Facebook's uh, idea, which GraphQL. Relay, um, yeah. yeah, Relay, thank you. Any move in that direction? Uh, so right now it's just uh, pretty much RESTful JSON APIs. Um, but those are definitely interesting ideas uh, that I've been looking at. Uh, would, yeah, it'd be really interesting to, to see if we could apply those uh, to mm -hmm. Metabase. Um, but for now, yeah, it's it's pretty... Vanilla, REST, JSON. Just curious your thoughts on React in general as a person who's you know seen a lot of tools over the years in the JavaScript space. Uh, I, I love React. Um, 
the thing I've sort of been struggling with is, uh, you know, React is is great for taking some data, turning it into a UI, um, but it's not it's not the whole picture. Uh, right. You know, you need you need something else to sort of manage that state, um, whether it's Flux or something like Relay or um, or what have you. But we're uh, we're starting to look at using Redux, which is a uh, it's it's Flux like i don't know if it's technically considered flux but uh it's it's sort of a unidirectional uh data flow framework that's very functional and uh focused on immutable uh objects and that sort of thing so um we've been using that in bits and pieces of of the front end uh but it's not we're not using it for the entire application state it's more like little silos within the application um uh-huh. Yeah, Redux is interesting. Actually, we just had a a ping on our ping repo, which is kind of our open inbox where people can give us show suggestions. Yeah, Dan, uh, uh, I think Dan Abramov. Uh, Abramov, yeah. Yeah, he'd be a and, great person to have. Yeah, he actually agreed to come on. We just haven't scheduled it yet. So look forward to that, everyone. And um, let's get back to databases again because we have uh, Postgres, MySQL, uh, Redshift, which I think is like planned but not yet supported. Mm-hmm. Um, H2, which could you explain H2 for us non-Java people? Um, H2 is just an embedded database in Java land. It's morally equivalent to SQLite in many ways. Okay. So it's there just for a, a nice default, basically? We use that as our, our default uh, database for Metabase's own data. Uh, so you don't need to set up uh, Postgres or MySQL. Very cool. And anything else uh, technology-wise that you guys are using in part of your stack that we haven't touched on? Uh, I see that you got an Xcode project in there. Obviously, there's a little Mac app, which appears to be a web view, um, which makes a lot of sense. Anything else that you're doing technologically that's noteworthy? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think there's some other interesting stuff. I'm not sure exactly what it is off the top of my head. Um, so switching back in, I... There's some interesting things we're doing around just fingerprinting columns and trying to infer the semantic model. Um, what we've shipped to date is really just uh, sort of the minimum vi- minimum usable um, set of rules and heuristics, but we're hoping to really push those as far as possible. At some point, you know, my pipe dream is I load it up, I point it to a data warehouse, and it automatically knows everything that I could tell it about the underlying data model. Um, obviously that's, you know, years or decades away, but that at least is the hope, um, rather than having to sort of point a database mm-hmm. and spend hours or days restructuring data, uh, annotating things and just moving it from like, Hey, it's kind of cool out of the box to this measures everything that I wanted to measure. One more question before we break is we mentioned earlier, um, you know, the thing about meetups and comps and, We've talked about why Metabase is open source, but even inside open source, there's different kinds of open source. And I'm curious um, what kind of open source project you want this to be. Uh, one hint that you gave is that you were very excited if somebody would submit a RethinkDB driver. Um, are you hoping this becomes a large community effort or is this an open source product that you know Metabase employees are going to work on in the open? I think initially it's going to be the latter. Um, and part of the reason is we're trying to be really meticulous and thoughtful about the front end 
and specifically on the design side and making sure that uh, what comes out of the process looks and feels like an application that you use today. Um, and one of the one of the things that the open source community has been um, has had mixed results in is just creating end user interfaces. And so at least on the front end of things, we're going to be pretty OCD and pretty meticulous and just very ordinary about that. Um, and so, you know, while we definitely would love people to help out, we you know, we want a vibrant community. We're primarily we're in the open source because we want to give back and not so much because we're looking for contributions or fishing for people to help us out. Okay. Actually, I mean, I, I agree with everything Samir said. Um, I think there are very specific, you know, integration points that would be perfect for open source uh, contributors to, to help out with. And I mean, drivers are definitely one of them. Um, I think, we, we don't have a great API for it yet, but this, this pulses thing that uh, we were talking about earlier, you know, different integrations uh, with different external services um, and maybe eventually different charting uh, charts and, and graphics and that sort of thing. So there are a bunch of different areas that I think uh, it would be great for, for us to sort of document and uh, expose very clean APIs that external developers could use to extend Metabase. Very cool. Well, let's take a quick moment here from another one of our sponsors. On the other side of the break, we will talk about getting started, how you can actually get Metabase up and running today, pointed at your company's databases, um, and we will also ask our closing questions. So stay tuned for that, and we'll be right back. DigitalOcean has expanded their reach even further into Canada's startup and developer scene with the launch of Tor1, that's T-O-R-1, their first Canadian data center in Toronto. Head to digitalocean.com and use the code CHANGELOG to get a $10 hosting credit when you sign up. Again, digitalocean.com, use the code CHANGELOG to get a $10 hosting credit when you sign up. All right, we are back talking about how do you get started with Metabase. So I'm out there, I'm a developer or a, um, an interested person with some technical chops, and I want to get Metabase deployed maybe uh, on some personal projects or maybe for my company. Um, take us beyond the Mac app and the, the just the plane with the dummy data. How do you actually get this thing set up and running in kind of a production capacity? So our primary production platform these days is uh, Elastic Beanstalk on AWS. Um, in theory, anywhere you can run a jar, you can run Metabase. And so depending on what world you live in, um, we also have a Heroku deployer, uh, which is very functional, but I wouldn't say it's quite production grade yet. Um, and so if you're actually trying, thinking about doing it for real, I'd say either, um, use the jar, pass an SSL, um, pass in your SSL key store, uh, or reverse proxy it and, uh, terminate there. Um, or set it up on Beanstalk. And we have a set of, we have both a, a button that will pre-fill a lot of the Beanstalk settings for you, but that'll take something in the neighborhood of 15 to 30 minutes to kind of get that up. Um, and if you just want to play around with things in a, without putting in that much effort, you can just download the jar, uh, slap it on an instance or uh, server somewhere, and just do a java-jar metabase.jar and then log into it um, on port 3000. And it should, quote unquote, just work. It should, quote unquote, just work. And where do you go when it, quote unquote, doesn't just work? Like, where, where do we go for support or help or what have you? 
Um, so Twitter always works so at Metabase. Um, we also have um, at discourse.metabase.com a forum for our users to kind of chime in and mm-hmm. talk shit or get help. Um, and then if it's something that you think is actually a bug or a feature request, then GitHub Issues is a place to get in touch with us. Very good. We'll be sure to link all those up in the show notes. This is episode 182, by the way. So if you're not listening inside some sort of podcast client, uh, go to changelog.com slash 182 for the show notes. If you're in a podcast client, well, you probably know where the show notes are. Um, very cool. Well, let's briefly touch on the future. I think we've done that a little bit. I think the Slack integration is exciting. Uh, I think we talked far future where I can just shoot you a question and Metabase answers them like a genie. Um, what else What else do you have? What are you planning? What does Metabase look like in three years? What does it look like in five years? Um, I think in five years, we expect to build just the standard open source BI platform. Um, we're currently very useful for companies that are you know, in the five to 50 person employee range. Um, and we're just trying to build the foundation for data access just for all companies uh, in the three to five year time frame. So, you know, there's nothing, we don't lack for ambition. We don't lack for um, kind of crazy pie in the sky stuff. That's, I mean, I'll throw out one of my, one of my pet projects is just trying to give people a really simple way to do graph traversal. Um, and so it's not something that most people talk about in the context of analytics, but there's a lot of really common, really useful, really natural questions to ask um, that are really just uh, walking a couple edges in a graph. And so having the ability to do things like, oh, I want to see who complained about um, this album last week and how do they feel about these other albums? How did those the albums they're complaining about do in other reviews? And it's the ability to kind of take those questions, which in conversational English sound very innocent, but if you try to encode them in SQL, it'd rapidly get pretty annoying um, and make that something that's one or two clicks away. Awesome. I think I have time, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a quote that I got off of Twitter. I think this was a fellow by the handle EDW519, a uh, very interesting developer with lots of interesting little quips. One thing he said, which I thought of when we started this call, is he tweeted, no, no one would pay seven figures for a very fancy report writer, so they had to rename it Business Intelligence, which I thought was <laughs> kind of funny. And true to a certain degree. So that got me thinking, you know, if Metabase is successful, you know, um, I want to hear your thoughts on perhaps eliminating an entire job title inside many organizations. Um, this is perhaps a little um, inflammatory, but I don't think job t- jobs ever disappear. I just think that as time opens up, we find new and creative ways to fill them. And so what I, what I think will happen is that you know, the roughly 20 to 40% of an analyst's day, which is fielding these ad hoc questions, mm-hmm. will go away. But A, they'll have more time to do the stuff they actually enjoy and the creative sort of deeper explorations and just the more intricate, um, the more intricate question and hypothesis testing and exploration they do. Um, the flip side of this is I don't, in most places, it's really hard to get numbers right. And so if you're you know, one developer with a database that backs an app and you want to create a few graphs for yourself, it's really easy to, to 
to sort of say those are the numbers were cool. Um, if you're in a complicated place with you know dozens of different data sources with different views of the same data and different places and different rollups, a lot of what sort of business intelligence analysts that big companies do is not create those reports or create those dashboards. It's trying to figure out why you know this revenue number or this DAU is not the same as this other report. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. Mm-hmm. We hope to make that simpler and easier, but fundamentally, there's just a lot of human labor involved that we're at least one, you know, one generational AI advance away from being able to tackle or even hope to tackle. Yeah. No, I like that perspective. You're not replacing people. You are taking people and making them more effective in what their role is and allowing them to free up time that they would be doing manual labor and asking and answering more interesting questions. Um, and for those who were just dead weight, you know, y'all are just dead weight. So <laughs> you have to find, have to find something else to do. Well, it's, it's true. It happens. Uh, it's Jeez, dude. But the, yeah. <laughs> that's what they keep saying. You know, the pretty soon the computers will just write the programs for us. Um, and we'll I all keep hoping. Yeah. it's like, well, I'll just go get a margarita at that point, I guess. Okay, any other salient points, uh, Adam or uh, Samir or Tom, you guys would like to make before we switch to our closing questions? Um, just go download it, tell us what you think, complain, um, let us know how to make things better. I have one side note before we continue. And it's, it's just because I have to ask because I put it in the notes and I'm just curious if by any chance you borrowed from the playbook of WordPress when it came to the user experience of connecting to a database with Metabase? Um, I think I've had WordPress in my mind for a large part of the journey, Um, but not like, I'm honestly not a, I've never used WordPress that heavily, but there is a certain magical instant gratification angle that they've worked out. Um, And in the times that I have had to set up WordPress instances for other people, um, it's been, remarkably pain-free compared to other things I've done. Um, So there's always the intention of providing some sort of instant gratification in like under five minutes that I, that we definitely were inspired by WordPress on that front. Right. Um, It seemed like that was the, if it wasn't on purpose, it seemed like maybe it was by happenstance, but uh, just the, the process of like, there's a database either created by you recently that you're pointing mm-hmm. to or one out there that's you know obviously there you've got credentials and you're pointing it to it it just seemed very familiar when i was reading those docs and i was like i gotta ask that question so. <laughs> um i don't think any of us have used wordpress lately so if it was something we again were inspired by it was something very subconscious totally and it wasn't meant like oh you stole that it was just more like because <laughs> because you're right like they the instant gratification of setting up wordpress is pretty painless it's been a while since i've done it too we, we use wordpress uh here at the changelog for our site but you know it's been years since i've set up a wordpress install but i know the the process and it seemed similar all right now we uh now we're going into the closing questions here which one do you ask first man hero radar or what yeah i think we should ask programming hero because it gives me an opportunity to mention we just launched season two yes. of Beyond Code. True. Programming. Who is your programming hero is one of the feature questions on Beyond Code. Uh, season two now out there. Check it out. Beyondcode.tv slash Space City JS. 
For those of you who are out there in Houston, uh, you can now go there and watch your Beyond Code interviews and find out who your programming heroes were. So quick shout out to that. And now, fellas, we'll turn the question on you. Uh, let's toss this one to Samir, and then Tom can take the next question. So, Samir, who, if you had to name it, would be your programming hero and why? I mean, on some level, I've always wanted to be Jeff Dean. Jeff Dean, please uh, explain. Explain. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of this wrong, but he was one of the um, core programmers at Google. Uh, so he... And I'm not sure exactly how credit is distributed, but he, he had a piece in a lot of the foundational technologies that made Google Google. So MapReduce, Bigtable. Um, and just mm -hmm. by all accounts, he's a really nice guy, really, really humble, really good to talk to, and has had his fingers in some of the biggest projects and some of the most impressive things that have happened in the last couple of decades. Well, it's no wonder why... Uh... I'm jumping the gun, but in your email, you mentioned TensorFlow, which is also credited to him or to some point. Um, yeah, I'm not actually sure exactly who worked on that. I know um, Vincent, and I'm going to mangle his name despite the fact that we're, we're, I, I know the guy, um, has worked on it. Um, I, yeah, I'm not sure who worked on it. I think it's very interesting. I think it's there's a lot around the open source ML world that I've been following for a while. And there's a lot of reference implementations. There's a lot of um, execution platforms. Uh, one of the things I really liked about it was the fact that there is this, this visual kind of inspector and debugger and just kind of anchor. Um, and I have not fully internalized it. I haven't run any, any, real any um, classifications, any real data I have yet. Um, but it's definitely something I'm kind of poking and prodding and staring at for the last couple of days. That might be a little bit inside baseball, even for our audience, <laughs> uh, because TensorFlow just like just was announced yesterday. So uh, it's on his Wikipedia. On uh, is it on Jeff Dean's Wikipedia? That's why oh, that's cool. the I mentioned it because yeah. career at Google, it's the last one on the list. You know, Spanner, Bigtable, MapReduce, Google Brain, LevelDB, and TensorFlow. So I just I I jumped the gun, but I assume that may have been another reason why you chose. I didn't even know that, Jeff but Dean. yeah, I mean that that only makes it more impressive in my eyes. This uh, look just so TensorFlow, the new machine learning uh, framework that Google announced at the end of 2015. Uh, looking at their GitHub, there's only two contributors: a guy named Kievman and somebody named BRV. But those could be this whole thing may not have been on Git eventually, yeah, or originally. Anyways, now I'm getting into the weeds. <laughs> Do we want to give the hero question to Tom too, or no? <laughs> Actually, Jeff Dean was on my list as well, but um, yeah, uh, John Carmack would be another one. The classic uh, game. John Carmack, yes. yes. So Jeff, I think Jeff Dean is probably unique to you guys as far as I had never even heard of Jeff. Um, my fault, not his, I'm sure, but John Carmack is kind of an old favorite. A lot. He's he's the programming hero of many folks, yeah. so um one one new one and one old one there. Why why John Carmack? Uh, maybe self-explanatory, but if you could just humor us. Uh, I mean, he's he's uh, got an incredible history with you know game programming as well as uh, just programming in general. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> there's not 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 too much else to say. <laughs> so his Fair reputation enough. precedes him, and and he's awesome. Long story short, yeah. He, I mean, he I he 
he gives great talks as well, um, or at least or blog posts and that sort of thing. So, I'm trying to remember, Jared, who who else may have mentioned John Carmack? Can you recall? There's been multiples. Karen Meyer, I, I think, think for some reason she mentioned him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's been mentioned three or four times over yeah. over the years. He's also very kind of open and out forthright on Twitter, which is very interesting. There seems to be very little filter between his brain and uh, the, the Twitter submit box because he'll just throw stuff out there. Wow. Anyways. All right, let's let's uh, let's talk about the open source radar. Um, so either of you guys, uh, I guess we'll go with Samir first, but you know, if you had a week in a hack and it wasn't on Metabase and it was totally for fun and you were like, man, I've been dying to play with this, what would it be? You can't pick TensorFlow. Oh, uh, Tom, what do you think? <laughs> Give me a few seconds to think about that. Um, so I mentioned some of, some of the, we talked about, um, was it uh, Facebook's Relay, Netflix's right. Falcor, and Ohm Next are all sort of rethinking the way you, you do client-server uh, communications and web apps. And uh, those are all pretty interesting where you, you sort of, describe exactly the data that your UI components need and uh, you send one big request to the server and it sends everything back in one request and uh, it's very unrestful but it's uh, you know it simplifies things because you don't need to add a new endpoint to your back end every time you want to add a new feature to your front end that just reminds me of something that I forgot to ask so while we're, while we're doing this um... One thing that I thought of is, well, you got closure on the back end, but uh, is there any interest or thought of closure script on the front end just to unify your languages across the code base? Yeah, um, I, I think that's that's an interesting idea. Uh, you know, closure script in, and Ohm is uh, basically a React mm-hmm. binding or a closure script binding to React. Uh, right. So yeah, I think that'd be really interesting. I mean, one one advantage of sticking with JavaScript is. Uh, it's a little more accessible to um, broader range of developers as well as designers. Um, you know, designers can look at JSX and see you know that it's basically HTML. Uh, so you know, we have our our designers on our team are able to uh, do a lot of work on on components uh, in React and JSX and JavaScript, whereas uh, Closure script would add a little bit more overhead to, to that. So, yeah, that's interesting. When we had Facebook on, we asked specifically about JSX and if that was um, hard, uh, unapproachable from a designer's perspective, because they're so used to you know working with HTML and CSS as separate things and staying away from JavaScript, perhaps. Um, but they said internally they haven't found that to be an issue, and that you, when you think that you're just not giving designers enough credit or something. Um, have you found, so it sounds like you found that to be the similar where your designers are just fine working with react and JSX and no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly they, they're able to, uh, implement basic components and, or tweak existing components, um, just fine. So, but maybe that's, uh, an anomaly among our designers. So, (laughs) well, sounds like at least you metabase and Facebook, at least, uh, corroborating evidence there. All right, Samir, we stalled for as long as we could. <laughs> uh, have you thought of something besides TensorFlow that's on your radar? Um, I think, I mean, this is just me speaking from my own kind of background. I'm really curious where speech recognition and, um, 
uh, NLP libraries have gotten to in current years. So I think if I actually had a couple hours to bang away on weekend, I'd probably just throw together something that, you know, try to take our voices and going back to your idea about sort of the serification of Metabase, playing around with that. Not, not so much in the context of a feature for Metabase, but just to see where that world has gone to. Yeah, perhaps proof of concept or at least to, just to explore. Yep. All right. Well, Tom and Samir, it's been a blast having you on the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. I'm sure it's got to feel pretty awesome to be a couple years into this project and just kind of get the chance to come on a show like this and share with the open source world what's going on with Metabase and get people pretty excited. So I want to turn it back over to you, though, guys. Is there anything else you want to cover before we head on out of the show? Um, it's been a blast. Thanks for having us. Uh, I've really enjoyed it and looking forward to hearing more from you guys. And so listeners go to metabase.com. That's an awesome .com, by the way. I love it. And at uh, Metabase on Twitter, which is super cool. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors for sponsoring the show, CodeShip, TopTile, Harvest, and also DigitalOcean. And of course, our listeners, we would not go a show without thanking you and those members who support us and wear and rock the changelog tee. You are awesome, and I owe you a hug. But for now, fellas, say goodbye. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.